You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another edition of the Bandwagon Podcast. And today I have a, a very special guest, um, somebody who I've worked quite closely, um, who's been on their own incredible journey and doing an amazing sort of job um, working in um, with communities and in particular with the Sikh faith. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce him right now. It's uh, Jazz Rai. How are you doing, Jazz? Yeah, f- fine, uh, Ricky. Thanks. You all right? Can you hear me okay? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, so, Jazz, you know, for those people in terms of like, you know, some of the work that they might have seen you around, um, one of the things you're quite inv- quite heavily involved in is with the Seek Recovery Network. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the Seek Recovery came about in, um, we started in 2016. And it initially came about after the programs I was doing on the Seek channel. Um, some people recognised me from Alcohol and Beyond. And we was getting started getting phone calls. People were phoning the, the Seek channel and they'd pass on my number. And I think they were inspired by not only my journey, but some of the interviews that we did. So, but we had to, we needed to think of a name because Alcohol and Beyond was uh, something the Seek channel was doing. It was it was a, one of their programs. But some people were saying, Jazz Right, Alcohol and Beyond. But that didn't really, um, wasn't right. So we just came up with the, the name Seek Recovery Network. And I thought, it kind of worked and we was working with other agencies as well in the mainstream service providers, um, police, local authorities. So it was really just forming a network of people that uh, could support people in recovery. Did you feel at the time that there was a gap in services that, you know, what, what you were doing? So, I mean, we'll get to your kind of your own journey a little bit later on, but I just want to go kind of straight in there in terms of like, how easy was it operating in that space? if there was a space? Well, you, you talked about the gap then. Yeah, definitely was a gap. When I came into recovery, um, I came into recovery in 2009, but in 2009, when I went to my first AA meeting, I couldn't connect with it. 
there was just white people there and no offense to any white people but i just couldn't connect with that um but yeah definitely um the seat recovery that came about because there was a gap in the existing services and people of our community you know not just our community whether it's any other community whether you know south asian community that, that you know they feel more comfortable i believe sharing amongst their own people so uh, I could understand it in terms of like the first generation or perhaps even the second generation where language issues were, you know, uh, more prominent in terms of trying to convey the, the Punjabi need or South Asian need or the Sikh need. How, how did you, did you try and approach some of those, where those meetings were and say like, look, this is culturally is just not connecting. Is there something that we can do together, or is there some some way of working and adapting it or tweaking it for different uh, different audiences? I think I think that's the word I was, you know, as you was is speaking. Then, obviously, the language barrier for a lot of people wasn't wasn't an obstacle. It was it was that cultural identification. That's what they needed, you know, some sort of identification culturally where they can share and express. You know, if they're going to a wedding at the weekend, you know, for some people who are non-Punjabis or non-Sikhs aren't going to understand how difficult it can be to, to go to a wedding if you're Punjabi and you have a drink problem and you're trying to come off it. You know, I experienced that early on in recovery and early on in recovery in the fellowship of AA and even service providers wouldn't encourage you to be around alcohol that early. You know, I stopped drinking in January, January the 30th, and I had a wedding in um, mid-April. But, but for me, you know, I'd not been to any family function for a year. So I wanted to go back to, to the, um, you know, connect with family again. Mm. But, it was, but it was also a very big fear for me as well. But going to those culturally empathic meetings, I could share that and people understood. I, I remember speaking to quite a lot of sort of like, uh, sort of like ex-drinkers, so to speak, um, about how they got to a stage where they, they knew that they were getting invited to go to a party or a wedding to become the entertainment because they knew that the guests and, uh, or the, yeah. the person's friends know how they would behave once they've had a drink and to get them to that state to become, you know, the entertainment. Did you ever feel that was right? Or did you ever feel that you were in that kind of same position? It's definitely not right. I don't think anyone's going to say that's right. No, I'm not saying it's right. Like I mean, right, right, right in what I'm saying. Like yeah, that, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Some people know that they can, you know, give them one too many, and they're going to be the entertainment. They're the one they're going to take the Mickey out of, and it's going to become the joke. You know, I remember when I went to that wedding in April. It was in Birmingham, and it was it was my brother's sister-in-law's wedding. But there was a family from Derby that was there. And this one guy in particular knew my journey, knew I was an alcoholic, right? But three times he offered to get me a drink. And I, in the end, I had to say to him, if I need one, I know where the bar is, I'll get it myself. Mm. So there is people in our community and the people listening to this will know that, you know, that some people want to see you fall. They want to see you fall flat on your face again. And it's a shame, really. You know, I don't find that with some other communities, but in our community, some people do want you to fall flat on your face and they can say, well, look, there he is. He's, he's drinking again. Mm. And, and so, like, you know, when, when you're talking, when you're doing you know, recovery and running your program or running your, your, your meetings, um, how do you kind of cater for, for that? 
we allow people to share openly and honestly and freely. It's, you know, it's an environment where they're not going to be judged. You know, they, they've got the opportunity to share in Punjabi, they can share in English, or they can share in both. You know, but it's, 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 it's having the ability to be able to share and not feel judged and people to understand that you actually this does go, you know, everyone's like when some people are sharing in a meeting, that people are nodding thinking, yeah, I, I went through that. I did that. You know, I, I was going to be the joker. Yeah, you know, so yeah, there's that identification and finding those similarities that people can identify with. So I want to go a little bit back to the future uh, at this point then, Jazz. So it, how, how did your journey into alcohol start? My journey, um, I was 17. I was at college. I had my first drink at college. And at the time, I thought, even after that, for many years, I thought it was, that was normal, for, you know, 17. But since... That must have been a long time, Jazz. A long time. No, long it's not time. too long. Not that long. These 60s. Are, 60s. Uh, <laughs> Uh, these greys are just there to, you know. I look, I can't uh, say anything about greys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it was, um, I think it was 1986, 1987. So 1980s, I'm, I'm 50, be 51 next month. Right. Um, yeah, I I didn't particularly enjoy it. I'll be like, you know, I went to the, I went to the college called Wilmorton College and there was a pub next door to it, the Navigation. It was a friend's birthday, an English friend of mine, Scott. Um, it was his birthday. And I brought him a drink. I had a lager shandy mm. myself. And uh, like I said, I didn't particularly enjoy it. But, and after that, there was this um, a culture at college then when the lads used to chip in and buy a bottle, mm. right? So it's got into that culture, chipping in, buying a bottle. And, and I like the effect, you know, what it did. You know, letting you go over all the inhibitions, you know, you could, you know, there was the college parties and it was just great. You know, you could, you could dance, you could chat to girls, you could, you know what I mean? You could, mm. you, you felt free, but actually it wasn't, it was just a mask and a disguise. Yeah. And this just carried on for years and years and years. So that escapism, you found the tool that helped you kind of express yourself and forget right. about the inhibitions and, uh, and hopefully then get a drink or meet a girl at the same time. <laughs> Maybe not meet a girl. Didn't <laughs> <laughs> meet with the girls, get a drink, have a dance. And then go around pissed. <laughs> yeah, well, if, 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 straight up into my bedroom. So, I think that's kind of like culturally, that's fairly common kind of story in terms of what you're what you're kind of sharing at this point. When did it start to get a little bit more problematic, or you started to recognise? Hang on a second, I'm actually not like Scott. I don't know what happened to Scott, but I'll, I'll, I'll presume he's okay. Um, and to get to that level where you think, hang on. I'm more of an outliner here rather than whatever, what, what, how everybody else is going. I think I was 26 and my judge's daughter got married. I was 26 and we had a um, off-license convenience store. And, and I think that's where my problems really started. You know, I was before that I was drinking, it was, you know, social drink, if you like. But looking back, it was creeping up on me then as well. I was just drinking more and more every weekend, getting drunk and doing crazy things. But when we had the shop, it was um, it was my '96 was my judge's daughter's um, wedding, and I'd had a skinful throughout the week. You know, I was drinking in the shop at the weekend. But coming home, but coming home, I went to with her. Her brother was quite young, so I went with her when she got married on the yeah. wedding day. But coming back the following day, I had this strange feeling as I was in the car, and as soon as I came home to my judge's house. 
I was going upstairs just to lie down and I'd had a seizure. I only realized when I woke up that it was a seizure. And I think the alarm bells were ringing then. I went into hospital, they asked me how much I was drinking daily. It was half a bottle of vodka at the time. And they said, well, you're gonna have to cut down. And so they told you, me, so you, didn't, you didn't recognize that there was issue. And like you, so how long were you like um, caning a, a half a bottle of vodka? Well, it, was for, it was for months, if not probably a year or so. But, but Ricky, looking back, I was in denial. I was in denial. Well, so, so what I'm trying to get at is like, you're in the shop. Like, did the family start noticing that you're? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. So the, the, what I'm trying to say, there was a little bit of run up towards your judges. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Right, it didn't okay. just happen then. It was probably a good year or so, probably two years. Oh, where you're slowly revving it up every week, yeah. every week, yeah. Every year, yeah. It started off with the cans. The cans weren't enough. Went on to quarter bottles. The quarters weren't enough. Then it went on to the half a bottle, and kind of said that was okay. But was drinking cans as well with that. And then even that wasn't enough. I went on to a bottle. Even after that first seizure, um, my alcohol intake increased. You know, you know, went up to a bottle, 70 CL. You know, and eventually that wasn't enough. And then I went on to a litre. And so, like, at that stage where you've gone into hospital, the doctors are telling you to calm, like, you, you need to stop or you need to calm down mm. or severely reduce your intake. At that point, did you did you know that that wasn't you? You were going to ignore what they were going to say, and were, would you be class yourself then as a full full addict? Yeah, I was I was comprehending what they were saying, but I didn't want to accept it. Right. You know, my wife would say to me, "You're an alcoholic," and I hated that. I absolutely hated that. Um, she'd even say, "If I managed a week or so uh, without it," she'd say, "Okay, accept that you're a recovering alcoholic." I wasn't having that either. I, di I didn't want to be labelled an alcoholic. And I think partly that was because my dad was an alcoholic. Oh, and, okay. And so you already br were brought up in, in, in an environment where alcohol was already dominating family life and you could see the problems that it was bringing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad was, you know, his addiction to alcohol was quite bad. So I'd seen all that. Um, and, and I think for me, I didn't want to be like my dad. But, I, you know, and... You know, I still my grandma's still alive, and occasionally when I go and see her, she'll say, "You know, just when that you actually was worse than your dad." And it's quite, you know, to hear that it's it's quite scary. And then you you clearly then started having the the increase at that time. How were you be? How were you able to kind of balance out your your private life in terms of? drinking you keeping your addiction going um and then so to speak keeping up appearances as well at the same time would you class yourself were you functioning alcoholic in terms of going to work or were you just what was happening in terms of uh that balance i managed to keep it up while i was working in the shop for a while yeah the family knew that my drinking was getting out and my mom my dad was alive then as well and you know they could see what it was doing and eventually they'd had enough i wasn't allowed to go in the shop they stopped me from going in the shop. My brother and my wife were doing the shop. We had staff as well. Um, so they were running the shop. Eventually, um, my brother and my wife didn't want to do that. They didn't want to run the shop. And uh, my brother joined the police force, so he couldn't do it. My wife wasn't going to do those hours. And, you know, my family decided to sell the shop. You know, at this point, I was very angry and resentful towards them. You know, why are they selling the shop? It was a good income. There's plenty of booze for me, you know, so... But yeah, at that point, 
that's when it really my drinking got kind of worse I think if they never sold the shop and left it to me I would have I would have lost it anyway probably would have got nothing for it right or I'd ended up killing myself but for looking back it was a blessing I really do feel that selling the shop was the best thing that could have happened at that time but then when I started working after you know just getting jobs agent through agencies etc I couldn't hold a job down you know because I was just drinking I was either going there uh, after I'd had a drink or I wouldn't get up in the morning and go to work you know my life just became so chaotic for a couple of years and what did what did was there any um any point of this journey at this stage where um, you were considering help or somebody tried to push help onto you when I'd go into hospital um, after a seizure, maybe, or even for a detox, you know, the, the, the alcohol services would come down and it was just lip service. I'd, I'd listen to them and not, not do anything about it. I wouldn't even go to the, the local alcohol services. They'd suggest AA, but I, I never went. I'd, I mean, sometimes I'd literally walk out of the hospital and I'd be straight down to the off license. You know, so I was, you know, no, I wasn't going to go to any... And how many times were you going into the hospital at, at, at this stage? To be honest with you, Ricky, in 2008, I lost count how many times I went into hospital. I lost count how many seizures I had, you know, if, if I'm truly honest with you. Um, and, and I even remember one occasion when I, I was waiting for my sister in the waiting room when I crossed, I, I ran across the road to the off-licence, bought half a bottle, and I, and I had that while I was waiting for her in the waiting room. And... And was that, on looking back, was that the the the, the most amount that you were drinking at the, in in your in your career? Or no, did it go no. worse? I think towards the end of two thousand and eight, um, probably September October time. That's when it went up to a liter. You know, I could leave the house at six o'clock in the morning, go to the news agents, get a bottle of seventy cl. Come the evening, five six o'clock, I could go back out again. You know, and if someone who didn't know me very well. Wouldn't even be able to tell if I had a 70 CL. So I'd go out again, get another 70 CL, and they'd probably take it up to easily a litre. And what was it? Was vodka your. Yeah, vodka, yeah. Is that because of the choice of uh, like harder to smell off somebody or. Initially, it was because I thought it was harder to smell. I know someone who, when we had the shop, used to drink vodka, right? And they said, well, that, you know, before that, it was Bacardi. I was on Bacardi. And um, but then I went over to vodka. But then I think towards the end, I actually thought I enjoyed it. <laughs> I thought I actually enjoyed it. But no, but I think I just just got used to vodka. So what were the what were the next steps then from when you when you you got to this point where you're you're hitting you're hitting a litre bottle a day? You just said that you're quite enjoying it as well at some stage, at some aspect. What, what, why the change then? The change came when I think my mum and my brother came round. My wife had had enough, kicked me out enough times. I'd come back, you know, she had no choice but to take me back, I suppose. Well, she did have a choice. But it was my mum and my brother that came round. And they said, we've had enough of your bullshit. Pack your bags. We don't care where you go. We're looking after your wife. We're looking after the kids. And that's when it kind of, and I knew they were serious. I never put up a fight against them because, you know, I knew what was going to come. You know, they just physically throw me out. And I think when it, it dawned on me when I was sleeping on park benches, you know, spent nights on a park bench, you know, going to knocking on my church's doors houses. You so you got, they, you're out of the house and 
I'm at the house, yeah. You're at the house on that first night. What do you do? I don't just buy a bottle, walk around the streets, go to the park, and, and just sit there all night. And then I remember the following morning, I think I went to my judges. He let me in. He wanted to know what happened. Yeah. And then did you go, did he kick you out as well? No, he kept me for a while. But then uh, I went back home, but then the same scenario again. I'd get kicked out again after a few days. And then the park bench again. And then goes to, I mean, the only people that tolerated me were my sisters. Oh. They were the only people that tolerated me. And I think my mum, it was killing my mum as well. But she actually had to practice that tough love. Oh. Well, she already got used to it with your dad at some aspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you, 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 even at that point, then you realised that help wasn't wasn't kind of viable option. Um, I just try, I'm just trying to um, kind of think of the passage in my head in terms of where you get to a point, even when the park benches, you're sleeping there, you're doing all, all of this, and it's still not enough for you. What what was that tipping point? You know, even, even before he came to that, I got done for drink driving third time. That That's where it kind of, things really got from bad to worse. That wasn't enough for me. The third time you get getting caught, I got banned. Um, I had to take my test again. And, and then things just got kind of, and I was involved with the Godwara, in the uh, Derby Godwara, the main one. I was involved with local politics. And I think for me, that that's what really tipped me over the edge, the shame. You know what are people going to think, and I just can't. I can't get out of that. The shame. What, what would be people be thinking of me? Um, but it, it was in two thousand and nine when I woke up at my sister's house, and I just really had enough. You know, you could say I, I'd had enough of, you know, being fed up. And I just woke up and I thought, where, you know, where, where's this drink taken me? You know, I was living out of a carrier bag. You know, I've got, you know, we've got our own house. And um, living out of a carrier bag and, you know, thinking, you know, I played the double out the Godwaras with the Giannis, you know. Were you still drunk at this point? When I was playing the doubler? Yeah, yeah, when you were, when you were like in part, no, when you're part of the management committee. And... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I mean, this is how crazy it is and the addiction is. I was on the committee when I got caught drink driving the third time. Um, and, and then I think that was a lot, you know, the, the, the shame, like I say, the guilt and the shame and the embarrassment, what people are going to say. And I think when I woke up with my sisters and I just, like I said, I just had enough. I, I, I was ex I'd resigned to the fact that I'm probably not going to see my kids again. My wife's had enough. She'd had the divorce papers at home. And, but I just wanted my life back, Ricky. I just, I really did. You know, I used to think back, you know, I used to play the doubler with some good Gitanye, Giannis, et cetera, being up there with some of the, you know, religious leaders you know in the UK hanging around with them and then waking up in police cells waking up in your sister's house your judge's house your grandma's house you know living out of a caravan I thought well, you know what am I doing and and that's when it kind of dawned on me and that's when I wanted to change that, that's that's when the penny dropped for me but did you understand why you were drinking not at the time no it was uh, my last drink was in uh, January the 30th, 2009. And um, Friday, March the 13th was my first meeting. Friday, March the 3rd, first recovery meeting, 2009. 
And I'd say it wasn't until four years into my recovery that I realized why I wasn't, why I was drinking. It took me, you know, for some people say, you know, it, be, it took you that long. Some might even take longer. But I realized that I was just wasn't comfortable with, you know, who I was. I wasn't comfortable in my own skin. I was always chasing things, want to be something, something that I wasn't. And the drink was just a mask and a disguise. You know, even, even to the point where being on the Godwara committees, you know, um, playing the doubler, you know, hanging around the music scene, you know, going to the gigs, etc., going backstage with, you know, artists and that. So always chasing things, always wanting to be someone. And that, you know, and, I, and the drink was allowing me to do that. And then uh, at that stage where, you know, you're part of, you've, you've been caught, uh, you've gone into kind of recovery. You, so you've gone to tea, kind of your meetings at that point. Why, why, got, why did AA and the fellowship sort of kind of resonate with you? I didn't, I didn't go to AA for a few months, to be honest. I went to a group in uh, Nottingham called Backin, and that was for people from the uh, the Bain community, black people, Asians, and and for me, they used to we used to have meetings in Derby on a Friday evening. And the first meeting I went to, um, I still remember it today. There were seven people in that meeting, and it was almost like walking into a room with a rucksack full of bricks. That's how much I was feeling weighed down. You know, when I walked into that meeting, I um. I shared, I shared from the heart. And for the first time, for as long as I could remember, I cried. I'd, I'd been crying to manipulate everyone and anyone around me to prove that my drinking wasn't my fault, that it was my wife's fault, it was my mum's fault, my dad's fault, whoever's. Anna. But it was the first time, for as long as I could remember, I cried. And I think it, there was, I felt a lot of comfort from being around people from my own community right, that understood me. I just felt people, to, even at the Gondwana, people used to come round, the Gyanis, the Singhs, the Amrataris, and they say, Jazz, you know, if you can't stop drinking, have two shots at night, don't bother anyone, just have you two shots. But when I shared, and when I listened to these people, you know, everything they were saying resonated with me. You know, it was almost like whether they were uh, drug addicts or alcoholics, it was almost a mirror image of me. And I remember sitting in that meeting and realizing afterwards that this is how sick the mind is. I thought my mum and my wife had actually told each and every one of them what to say. It was a conspiracy because it was, they sounded, it was just too much like me. And I think that's what made me break down. I think, wow, you know, for me, for the first time in my life, I felt I actually, I, actually, I felt I belonged somewhere. Then, so how long did you stay with these kind of meetings before going over? I think it was my sponsor who was a potter back in as well. And it was David that suggested that I go to AA. And David suggested that, you know, you need to see recovery from, uh, from AA as well. You know, you just don't want to, you know, because they um, back in worked the program. They did the 12 steps. So a lot of them went to the fellowships, AA, NA, CA. And... Um, you know, I went, I, I was a bit reluctant because I'd been to a meeting in 2008 and it was a pretty bad AA meeting. It wasn't really AA, it was like a, um, just a, something that they called themselves AA, but it wasn't, it was a bad meeting basically. So I, I didn't really want to go, but David um, suggested that I go. I found another friend that 
um, a brother that went to these meetings back in. And um, we went to, there was, his home meeting was a Monday night. And I went to that meeting, it was amazing. You know, there's people, professionals, there's people that, you know, just ordinary people working 40 hours in factories. And there's people that just come out of um, treatment. So for, so for some people who are listening to this, that um, they may, may not have a sort of a concept of what an AA meeting looks like. Can you just tell us what, what that actually is, what it consists of and what's the kind of formula of it? AA is just a, a group of people that get together and share their experience, strength and hopes. You know, someone chairs the meeting. Um, there's, no, there's, there's no membership for, for you to go there. You can walk into any AA meeting anywhere in the country or even you can access it over Zoom now. And, um, you know, there's a group of people, like-minded people that are going to be there that share their experience, strength and hopes. And that's where you can share. And it's all private and confidential. You can, you can share without feeling judged or being ostracized, you know. And when you do that, you know, for me, a big fear was to, that I'm going to be ostracized by my own community. But in, when, in AA, when you're there, you're not going to be judged. And that's one of the greatest things that no one's going to judge you. That doesn't matter what you share. Is someone's going to have done what you have done. And the anonymity is such an important part of this as, as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and for a lot of people, when you, you would try and encourage them to come to the meeting, anonymity is one of the biggest fears. What if someone recognises me? What if someone sees me walking through that door? But, you know, for a lot of people, you know, rightly so, it is a big uh, anxiety. But honestly, the, the, you know, the confidentiality and that anonymity is uh, respected in the AA meetings. And I think in any, in any fellowship. So did you try any harm reduction approaches rather than? No. So abstinence was, was the, the way yeah. that it had to be for you? Yeah. I just want to kind of paint the picture easy because kind of like when you're in your, in your addiction um, kind of height, um, I was kind of entering the addiction field myself at that point and I started a conversation about identifying the, you know with the gaps and things and I, as I was going through a lot of the uh, talking to a lot of the hierarchy in terms of like the charity event um, and people who was just generally the people who are working within the addictions field I just really struggled to relate to any of them because I knew my community, the Punjabi Sikh community, had a real problem with alcohol. But when I was seeing the the data in front of me, it it just doesn't didn't exist. When I looked at the help and support where people were trying, those people who were going to the doctors and trying to get that help and support, it just didn't exist. You and you entering your AA at that time, you weren't. Were you seeing those brown faces, for example, that? were missing in the data that I was looking in, but were turning up to there? Very few, I'm not gonna lie, very few. I mean, the, 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 the meeting I went to in Derby on a Monday night, I think there's probably about three of us sometimes at the most out of about 20 in, in that meeting. And you so, could go to some meetings in Derby and there was no brown faces. So in your opinion, where do you think they were? I mean, I've got a theory into it, but I just want to know what your. They, what do you think? They were at home or drinking in the pubs. They, they weren't in. They weren't in recovery, were they? They weren't in the AA meetings. No. They weren't with the CGLs. 
So they, they basically they weren't accessing any any help. I started to see. I started to notice and seeing um, people getting sent over to India. I saw those rehabs starting to explode in in Punjab. And I think what like you've that. got to understand is people people were look. You got the addict that was in denial, whether it's drugs or alcohol, Hannah, right? And the family was in denial, right? So where were these people going to turn to? My mum was in denial. My mum, you know, she'd get asked just when If I wasn't at a wedding or tea they're constantly covering you up, you know, without, um, I don't blame them, you know, that's how they learned to deal with it. They it didn't know a, any better. It was a stigma and kind of their own self-medication, yeah. really. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, you know very well yourself that, you know, no mother wants her son, to, her son or daughter to be labelled Amali, Nakamma, Sharabi, you know what I mean? These are the labels in our community, the Punjabi words that we give, yeah. let, alone the, let alone the English ones that we give. Because I started to see a lot of the services then were starting to put on this kind of like the BAME set of service. And I don't really blame them really because they're, they're trying to engage with like as many different cultures, communities as possible. They put these on and it's like a tick box for them in one aspect. Say, so look, we're trying it. Look, we've done it. We've just commissioned this piece of, you know, this campaign to try and get them in there. But knowing full well that you're missing out on the people you know, like, I was funny because I was having this conversation with, uh, I think a couple of weeks ago with uh, DJ Rem uh, Reminis, um, Basic Canada. And I would say, like, now we're seeing the first generation of cocaine users in South Asian communities, especially, like, the Punjabi community, who've been doing it since the year 2000. That's when it kind of, like, where it kind of started. We've never had this data before in terms of, like, we we're starting to see people kind of, having serious problems now because of their kind of drug use um some entering in, in get into into treatment ironically you know i'm 39 now and the average age of people coming into treatment for drug use is about 39 into 30 37 to, 30, to like 40 odd and for alcohol it's a little bit more so i know there's this influx of people who my age who are, who are going to start entering treatment in some ways it's almost a better time for them to engage into treatment because of the likes of work that, you know, like you've done in trying to make that easier. What was some of the challenges that you found straight away that you needed to try and address? Super question, Iris. Um Thank you. <laughs> Hard question as well. <laughs> no, no, it, I'm not saying there's a right answer with this. No, 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 no. I'm no, just no. trying to say. No, I, I think the challenges for me for me, when I when I decided I you know I'd had enough, I was quite fortunate that backing was around, and they still are, right? So for me, when I when I wanted to access, I didn't I didn't go into rehab or treatment as such, but when I wanted to go for, I was lucky that I went to a group where it was culturally empathic for me. But I think a lot of people that didn't know have the benefit of backing. The challenges for them would have been where do they go? for this where is the awareness where is the education that actually these places exist where is the education or where is the awareness that the seat recovery network exists it's only because we make the noises or we go out there doing the work that you know we're getting recognized you know what are the mainstream services doing to, to promote this what are the commissioners doing to promote this is everything that we've done the seat recovery networks done 
is we've had to promote it ourselves. People like yourselves or on the Seek channel, you know, that we've had to go out there and make those noises. We've set up the meetings ourselves where other people or other communities have gone out to get funding for them. You know, we do knock the Godwari, but these Godwari in Derby, South or Leicester, Coventry, they have facilitated these meetings because they, they recognise there is a need for it today. Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I can see that. I also, I also see in, in terms of where, where we potentially in the community had charlatans of coming in and kind of exploiting... Um, some of those vulnerable people saying, you know, give us X amount of money and we'll sort 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 this person out. We'll get rid of their addiction. We'll we'll get it all sorted. Knowing full well, did you ever have to face that yourself? Yeah, I mean, I've just had it um, the, recently. People wondering why we're we doing this for nothing. People ask, what do you charge? We charge nothing. You know, but some families, yeah, they're, that's they're struggling or or don't have it in me to ask them to even pay for my expenses. We don't ask where, but yet you. I've been to families' houses where they say, "Who do you work with?" You know, they, and I say, "I'll come down with someone," and they want to know the name because they've been ripped off by people in our own community, saying, "Oh, so and so, they asked for money. Don't come with that person." So there are people that have been asking for money, you know, home detoxes, and and some of these people have got no, they haven't even got the lived experience, and the way of dealing with it isn't, you know. It's taken to the Godwara, you know, these guys, they're not even clinically, the alcohol isn't even out of the system yet, and you're telling them to do the part. Do you know what I mean? You want to take them down to the Godwara when they can't even think straight. God. Yes, there are people in our, in our community, Ricky, we have to be honest here, but there's people in our community that are exploiting our own people, and they're shafting them, and they're not giving them anything. What we're saying, the Seat Recovery Network, is if you need treatment, we do need we know a reputable treatment centers that you can go to, mm. right? But for me, I did it. I struggled for four weeks. I did it cold turkey, right? If you really want to do it, you can do it in the community. Mm. I, I remember somebody coming up to um, very early on in, it was probably around about 2011, 20, 2012. I think they've just been ripped off for about 25 grand, the family on like numerous chip shops and stuff and i got this call about two o'clock in the morning um i think that i was a lot more kind of passioned in that way of trying to help and stuff and to be honest i've said it before it it, it burnt me out because it was on it was at the cost of me basically um and as i'm having this conversation with them they they were like oh you know what's what's your kind of your your answer to this and i said look i haven't got an answer of right now because it's one two o'clock in the morning just give me until the the morning and i can sort something out and they go well you need to let us know before then i said why they go oh because we've booked him on a on a flight to india and um i said look i'll, I'll try my best but like i don't know what deadlines that you're going to how to work anyway long, long story short the person come goes to goes to india they, they, they come back and i got a phone call again they said look could you come to the house so i was like okay i'll come to the house i came to the i came i came to the house and uh, at that point uh i was speaking to him i was speaking to him and uh, all of a sudden i realized 
that something ain't right here. It's like he'd, he'd started drinking again quite excessively, but they couldn't understand because he'd stopped drinking for like five weeks while he's been in India at this point. Um, I then asked him, I said, like, so, you know, when you went to India, what did treatment look like for you there? Um, he goes, basically, I got off the got off the, the, the plane, went to went home in the middle of the night. <clears throat> some people came to the door, knocked on the door. They grabbed him, put him in a van, took him to some center. And at the center, there was huts where they had all the mud, all the cows. And they literally just tied him up to a munja for like five weeks, cold turkeyed come back and then presented him to the family say look he's not drinking obviously he hasn't been drinking because he's been tight he's been bloody kidnapped and and then as soon as they came over obviously the first thing they see oh look he stopped drinking look how healthy he is and all this but they about a day later he's gone down to the pub gone then gone to the off license and started drinking again so there was just absolute no social social cycle interventions and you're like what are you expected to do? So they, they didn't even tell the family of what they were doing. He was too embarrassed to tell him what had actually happened to him. Only opened up to, to me because I had an inkling what was going on because, you know, you hear these horror stories all the, all the time. And because I think in, 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 in kind of summary, I think in terms of the community, don't feel like somebody can achieve anything without they feel like that they're throwing money at it. <laughs> Yeah. You know what I mean? If they're throwing money at it and it works, well, I've got, I can explain that. But if something's working out for free, they think there's a catch. And I think that's where, like, I think that has been one of the challenges of trying to explain about addiction is that your addiction doesn't give a shit about money. It doesn't care. You, the, There are other things that are much more important. I think, you know, it's interesting that Ricky, what you just said, and one of the reasons the family, they're desperate, right? So they'll, they'll go to any, oh, yeah. they're, they're desperate, Hannah. But that doesn't work. I mean, this, you know, this person you're talking about, you know, I've heard a lot of horror stories, mm. right? Um, and one of the reasons they come back they, and they drink, they're resentful. They're full of resentful, you know, for the family as well, for putting them mm. through that. Oh, and yeah. the people, then the people that have done it, you know, and if they're religious people, they're not going to go, go back to the, that kind of, you know, to the Godwara or wherever. So they don't, people don't realise they actually do more damage than good. Mm. You know, and, and these people that go to these places just come back just angry, resentful. And the first thing they want to do is get off their head. Mm. Out of spite as well, isn't it? It's just like... Just out of spite, out of anger. You know, I, I had it when I used to get, um, you know, and I'd be taken away... Um, my mum and dad used to come and take me back to their house, you know, give my wife a bit of a break and they'd keep me there for a, a few days. And I'd just be like a prisoner for, you know, you know, I wouldn't be allowed out of the house on my own. And when I did get out on my own, the first thing I wanted to do was have a drink. So I, I totally understand, you know, why the families do it. it's desperation, but money isn't the solution. I mean, one year, it was a few years ago, I had a lady phone me around Christmas time. She got my number off my wife at the Godwara. And uh, she phoned me and she says, what uh, the kind my son's, uh, he's on drugs and alcohol. His, his marriage is, one marriage has failed. His second marriage is about to fail. You know, how, can you tell me what, you know, what help can you uh, give him? And how did you stop? I tried to explain how we did it, how I did it. And it took me three times to explain. And I, eventually, 
I said, my auntie told you that you don't have We do it through the meetings. And she goes, no, but the candy name. I said, I don't know what to do. 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 I don't know what to Then she started laughing. And that's what the people want. We're too medicalized, man. It, it is medicalizing, but yeah. for me, you know, you hear it in the fellowships as well. The solution is in the rooms. The solution, if you really want to get better, go into those meetings. You know, you don't have to pay. And when you get when you get dis, uh, discharged from treatment, Ricky, you know this. What do they give you for aftercare? What do the treatment centers? You know, your bloody priories, all these expensive ones, right? What, what do they say to you when you get discharged? And, right, here's your aftercare. Go on. They give they give you a handshake and a smile. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they give you that. Yeah, but what, they say. Go and find yourself a sponsor. Go to your AA meetings. Go to your, you know, mm. you do that for free anyway. You don't need to pay five, six, seven, eight, nine, twelve grand, eighteen grand to know that. The solution, I, I believe, the solution is in the rooms. If you really want recovery, if you want it and you want to change, you don't need to pay ten grand. I, I was on my hands and knees. I was in the gutter. I was desperate for it, and in the early days. If my sponsor said something, I'd go to any lengths to do that. He said, go and find yourself an AA meeting. I did that. You know, if he said phone me every morning at 10 o'clock in the morning, I did that. So, you, I mean, you, so you kind of going back to your story a bit then. You've set this up. Why did you feel the need then to, to, to do set up Seek Recovery? Seek, because there's nothing there for our Seeks. You just said it yourself. Where were the Punjabis? Where were the Sikhs? They weren't in the rooms. They needed some, not just me, but there's others as well. They needed someone like to us to talk so that shame was lifted. You know, if someone who played the double line, the Godwara, who was on the committee, got caught drink driving, they can stand up in, in his own community, in his own Godwara and say, yes, I did that shit. I'm not proud of it. Mm. I'm ashamed of it when I think about it. But, you know, it happens. We've had phone calls now from Amrataris on committees who are drinking, who are on pills, right? But they're, they're doing it, hiding it. They're hiding under their, you know, their banner, if you like. Mm. But, you know, for me, the best thing that I could do was admit it for, for myself and for others. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, Gotta be careful. <laughs> say it, man. Say it. No, no. I, no, no. I think what what it was is like, in fairness, like I, I know at the time, I, you know, I I personally had tried, and other people had tried to try and do their. I had like seek recover. I had a seek to recover, and I was the kind of philosophy around it was to get, um, you know, I was trying to bridge that gap from Punjabi culture to the religion in terms of that religious institution. So for example, you'd have somebody who'd um, been outcasted by like the Gordar. So they'll go like, like yourself, for example, you'd be needing help or treatment. You go to a Gordar to try and help. The Gordar would say, well, you know, and I had it said to me like, oh, a proper Sikhs don't drink. They got, you know, a proper Sikh doesn't drink. And they wouldn't engage. They'll get somebody in to try and put up a banner, like a, a little, poster of trying to get people into treatment 
they realize at this point that the person who they're trying to get into doesn't go to the goddamn because they're not allowed in. Somebody's being they, they kick them out. They're outside being ostracized. And I always felt that there was this bridge to try and bring in. So talking therapies, getting the community used to talking therapies, because if you've got the right ingredients on everything, regardless of what the subject matter is, whether it's sexual abuse or physical domestic violence because that's the other those are the hidden harms isn't it so from alcohol for example the strong relationship with sexual abuse and, and physical uh, physical abuse that doesn't necessarily get get come out on the on the forefront on a conversation and i always found that when i was trying to trying to put this up i just couldn't get the buy-in so i took it to a point and then i always thought like somebody else better than me will just come pick this up move it forward and that's why you know when yourself when you came in and you were doing the AA models and all this I was like this is the guy this is the person to kind of going through so I think you know like just trying to and and the other danger which I will say was that there were some some organizations and there's some of them still around now um were they trying they was how long it took to sit on those tables and get the respect of those commissioners, those organizers, those charities to try and help out, almost kind of bulldozed their way to sit on the table and really did some damage. They really did some damage. And I kind of learned the lesson then where I think that was the kind of straw that broke the camel's back where I thought I'm constantly kind of swimming uphill here. I Instead of trying to tackle this kind of like on a lone ranger kind of way, I need to just support several people and try and help them achieve what they did but i feel like what you've done you know and how you've pushed it forward has been excellent and so i'm always keen in terms of like how to support the the seat recovery network but also not just that what's it going to take to push you onto the next level so what is those next steps for them for you jazz <laughs> good question Ricky I think the next steps really is um you know I've been blessed as well to be you know on this journey met some great people you know done you know done some amazing stuff and I think it's I don't know what the next step is I don't know we'll just carry on Hannah and see where it takes us yeah I have got some short-term goals long-term goals we'll just see you know and like I said you know we're not in it those organizations you're on about we know who they are they've been exposed Right. But, that, you know, they, I, th I believe they only damaged themselves. They haven't damaged the work that we're doing, the, the work that you started. Right. We just picked off from where you left off. And, you know, I, I didn't even know about you then. But the support we've had from you has been unconditional. And, you know, I've learned a lot working with you and doing these kind of uh, podcasts, interviews. And so we're learning all the time, you know, and I, I'm not afraid to sit down with any any service provider. We get criticised for working with certain ones, saying they're using you. But you know, if they hadn't used us, there's a lot of people that wouldn't be in recovery now, mm. right? But it's a two-way thing. I don't believe they're using us, for a start. You know, we're using their resources; they're using our resources, and we're helping people to get into recovery. Now, we can't do this on our own. The Seat Recovery can't, Network can't do it on our own. These organisations that sat around these tables, they didn't sit there because they could do it on their own. They were doing that because there was a big part of funding there. And we know where that funding was going to go, right? But at least we're working with the mainstream organisations now, right? And the Punjabi or the Sikh community are getting that support that they need. 
you talk about you know now you you know in some of the outbuildings that the god that i provide there's people that have come in there intoxicated but they can sit in those outbuildings they've come to the god they can sit there and they can talk and you know what some of those people have remained in recovery you know they've had, they've had blitz but they've come back and they're in recovery but i think there's a lot of work there is a lot of work to do i don't know where the next where we're going to go i'm just going to carry on with doing what i'm doing yeah. i just had to, i just got maybe it's kind of like when you're a kid and you could think you know cars are going to start flying soon you know i always thought by you know when i entered the addiction field when i was kind of in it or towards the end of it that like you know when you you don't necessarily go to like a seek hospital if you break your leg you just go there because it's universal isn't it oh. and one aspect was to say is it universal in terms of like um addictions that you wouldn't need to have cater for different communities the more that i've kind of saw it kind of grown up the more the need is and i just thought the amount of operative doctors that i know pharmacists all these skilled professionals all this money all these charities that are, are going somewhere down there someone better than me someone better than a project manager or someone to put together and say right we've got the ambition here to put up uh a center or whatever it may be for different aspects but just taking that that idea from from paper into kind of reality and all the charities can put their names to it and say yeah we did we, you know we've done this and that i just think i think people are just so caught up in their own kind of momentum or their own identity they just don't focus on one area it's just i want to do a little bit of this i want to do a little bit of that uh, and it's normally driven by individual, one individual, or two individuals, or three individuals. But I think to have a, a whole organisation, like working towards it and have a legacy, I think that's where it might happen. Because totally, it will happen. It will happen. Mm. I genuinely believe it will happen. But unfortunately, like you've just said, you know, um, A, this isn't glamorous. You've seen the amount of people that go out there doing the longer. The lunga is a bit more, is a bit more glamorous, Anna, to you know feed someone and and you know, and put it on social media. Oh, we've done this many feeds, we've done that many feeds, etc. Right, and then with our people within our community, there's too many. Like they say, everyone wants to be the leader. You know, you, then you've got the ones who are the jack of all trades. They'll say, we do this, we do that, we do everything, but they can't do anything. Right, you know, it just saddens me really. The, the community what like ours that, that that you know blessed in so many ways with so many professionals and you know so affluent that yet we can't do this because there's too many people that want to be the main guys but i genuinely believe in my heart that it will happen mm. you know maybe it's not us that are going to do it you know your work was carried on by someone else and maybe our work will be carried on taken to the next level by someone else you know and maybe we can all put our name to it yeah I, i'm not i'm not having that kind of defeatist attitude i just thought i had to kind of you know sometimes you you're doing you do a piece of work and you've got to kind of make your peace with it to turn around and say like okay done as much as you can let it go what would it look like what would the ultimate kind of thing look like you know how how would it kind of what that image is but i also think that you know, we've we've concentrated quite heavily on alcohol, but we know, like, at the same time, that there's um, 
you know, the, the, the drug side of it, especially in the other field, the music field that I've got an interest in is like how that's facilitating and the damage that's being done as well. Um, do you kind of see your area in terms of like expanding more? I know you do drug, drug and alcohol. Do you feel that attention is being neglected and are you working to do that? Absolutely, Ricky, you're 100% there. I do feel it's been neglected. The focus has been on alcohol. When you know and I know, the the use of cocaine has just kind of exploded over the last few years. And, 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 and I think it's only coming to light now because some of the deaths that have been happening, you know, heart attacks at young ages. And I think people are covering that up as well. So yes, I think it's something that we're going to have to look at with professionals, you know, we can't do everything. Um, and, and I think more needs to be done in that in our community to raise awareness about that. Yeah, my mate, owned, I've said this before, like many years ago, but like, it's still the case now. My mate owns like a wedding hall and he finds more cocaine residue in the women's toilets than he does in the, in the men's. And it, so like that, that kind of awareness of what's going on is that like, there's a lot of things that people just don't simply just know about, but there's many different reasons, weight loss images. You, you see people having Botoxes, all these kind of addictions, the, the appearance to look good as best they can, taking substances, taking a weight, get weight loss pills, all of this thing is just like, I could, you can just see it simmering and boiling away everywhere. Quick fixes, isn't it? Everyone wants a quick fix. And I think that well, we do live in that instant gratification. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, if you want to watch something, you go straight on your phone. It's just there. You don't have to wait for anything. Yeah. But it's the same with recovery. People, you know, who I was drinking 15, 20 years and, you know, and I wanted it straight away, but you have to put the effort in it. You know, it doesn't come overnight. You're going to have to work hard at it. And it's, you know, with weight loss, you know, look at you. You, you don't have to do any Botox. What, what's your secret? Oh, this is just pure fat, mate. <laughs> So, like, if you've got, like, if you're, you know, with me, if I'm fat, then it stretches the skin, so it makes it look good. It's only when I lose weight, that's when they'll say, yeah. Ricky, you, you've aged. But these bags are, like, I can't do anything about them. Might have to uh, ring Ravita Panu and say, yo, I had her on, so, she, you know, she owes me some favours now. Um, Just coming to, to this bit, and the timing of this is so when people will, will, will see this out, we'll be in the middle of Alcohol Awareness Week. Um, what are some of the things that you've had, like you got planned for Alcohol Awareness Week or what does it kind of mean for you? Alcohol Awareness Week is, um, for me, uh, for the Street Recovery Network, is, you know, get the message out there that recovery is possible, that the help is available, reach out, you know, don't be fearful, don't be ashamed, you know. Um, what we're doing over Recovery Week, we've doing some posts online on the social media, we're doing our own podcast. We do our own podcast um, under the influence. We've got some podcasts going out all week. And um, yeah, doing some interviews, doing working with Turning Point, doing stuff with them, just trying to raise the awareness, you know, let people know that there is help available. Yeah. You know, let's use this week just to get the message out there. Yeah. So, Jazz, um, um, this is called, you know, we've, we've spoken many times and, and you will be always have the door open to you on, on here. Um, this is called the bandwagon. So I, I give it, uh, every guest an opportunity for them to kind of uh, either jump on a bandwagon or get off a bandwagon or just generally just get, raise something that they feel like they want want to share or get off their chest. Is there any of those, anything that you want to do? Nah, sounds cool, man. Oh. Nah, I, just wanna, I just want people just to spread the love, man. Just oh spread God. the love. <laughs> 
there's a lot of love. There's a lot of love here, Ricky. Don't be, don't be shy, man. <laughs> That's a different point. Spread the love, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean, Jazz. It, it, it's definitely kind of a time to kind of unite and work, work together, especially to try and no one's going to beat this on their own. It's just going to be one of those ever-ending battles, but we've got to have enough people. We, we, we ain't got enough soldiers at this point. Now we want good people as well. Genuine people, sincere people, you know, I'm not blowing smoke up your ass here, mate, you know, but you've been doing this a lot longer than us. And, you know, there's a lot of sincerity with yourself and, uh, and that's why we can work with you. There's people who try to use us and abuse us. You know, I ain't got time for those people. And I'm one of our people in my community, the ones with the, the long beards, and uh, they claim to be, you know, the Banth Sardes de Karaya, right? I ain't got no time for them. I don't care what they think of me, right? I want to work with people with sincerity, with empathy, with love, compassion, and warmth, you know, and that's what's going to, you know, help our community is that love and that warmth, you know, and that's what we need. Jazz, thank you for uh, jumping on today. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll put all the links to the Seat Recovery Network on the description on um, on, on the podcast, wherever you see it, on YouTube as well. And um, uh, I wish you all the best. And as I said, anything you need, all you need to do is just call, mate. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Ricky. Thanks, mate. Cheers. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.